what are the implications not only of imagery or of art, but of technology as applied to those images? What is it that changes when a given image can become reproducible on a substantial scale, when a certain mass of people can access it and it's no longer sequestered away in halls of of wealth, privilege and power? This is Sachin. And this is Eric. Welcome to Luminary, kitchen table style conversations with some of the world's brightest minds exploring boundaries of human knowledge. Join us on a pursuit to transmit intuition and ideas. Find us at luminary.fm or on Twitter at luminaryfm. We'd love to hear from you. Today's guest is Amy Lippert, an assistant professor of urban and social history at University of Chicago, with a particular focus on visual imagery, visual culture, and mass production. She is the author of Consuming Identities, Visual Culture in 19th Century San Francisco. In this episode, we cover the nature, importance, and history of visual images, how visual images have influenced and intersected with society and culture, and why 19th century San Francisco is a unique case study in visual imagery and culture. We also discuss why celebrities exist and how images create and narrate stories around celebrities. And just a heads up, we had some issues while recording this episode, which impacted the audio quality towards the end. Tell us about your childhood and your journey into academia. Well, you know, I I honestly do believe that that had quite a bit to do with how I came to work at the interstices of these different disciplines, so to speak, or these multiple subjects. Because I think if you come from a place where the unorthodox is every day, Uh, It can facilitate a sort of imaginative way of approaching the world and your work. So I was raised by two hippies, (laughs) (laughs) essentially. My, I mean, they're maybe not to the level of a commune, but my my mom is a retired labor and delivery nurse. My father was a family doctor and spent my childhood in a small town, very small town in New England, Worthington, Massachusetts, about 1,500 people. And we moved to a very large city, Long Beach in Southern California, when I was nine. And, you know, my parents raised us from a very early age to essentially question the dominant paradigm, to, you know, approach the world through our own set of, you know, critical thinking glasses and to ask if things aren't, you know, a certain way, can they be better? And how can I help, (laughs) essentially? So, I, you know, I think that really informs my worldview to this day. And I was always fascinated with imagery. That was, I, I don't think that I possess a traditional understanding of a photographic memory because I, I think that entails a total recall of statistics or text. But I was always very visually anchored. I could remember faces, people I had met just once in passing. I, I seemed to be able to know that I had met them even if I couldn't immediately locate where. 
I did that with actors quite a bit when I see them on screen. So it was always a realm that fascinated me, and I didn't really know or expect that I'd be able to apply it until I started doing graduate work in history and realized that this was an opening, essentially, uh, an opportunity to apply some of the things that had long fascinated me and to take that sort of unorthodox aspect of my family, my background, and apply it intellectually. And today, what are your primary areas of research? So I usually self-define as a 19th century U.S. historian specializing in cultural and urban history, but with an emphasis on visual culture. So I'm particularly interested in what scholars often refer to as problems of perception. That is, I'm interested in the history of all sorts of different images, particularly mass-reproduced images, what art historians might call vernacular images. So not necessarily that which occupies the pantheon of high culture, classic artworks by uh, formal artists, but mass reproduced images, particularly of of people. Um, That has long fascinated me. And and I think that's probably the central way I define myself. And also, how does this resonate with you? The, The visual culture? Yeah. I think that it resonates with me because it's still with us. And when you think about the gap between, you know, a, a time that, uh, a time period that's separated from our own by, you know, century and a half, a couple centuries, there's so much that's changed in the interim. And so many aspects of that, you know, life and culture and daily existence are part of the heavy lifting historians try to do, especially in a classroom or in our published works, when we try to convey to people just what's different about this world. But there are so many aspects of the 19th century that I see resonating through our own time that are really pulsing through our modern culture. And the spectatorial elements of it are among some of the most paramount ones. The ways in which images have become somewhat ubiquitous in our daily lives, whether that's in work or in leisure. The ways in which if you enter into any office building, I would argue, today, one of the most reliable phenomena you'll find are photographs pinned up in people's cubicles, framed on corporate desks. Those are signifiers of who and what we're working for and what really matters in our lives. It's the human relationships and the ways in which images narrate those threads that connect us to other aspects of our lives or um, ourselves. And that starts to take hold along with the uh, invention of photography in 1839 and with the introduction of modern printing methods, um, true sort of mass reproduction capacity, steam printing, lithography, and there are a number of other technological innovations that take hold just in the midst of a, a lot of other very large changes like transportation and communication revolutions in the 19th century. And so I, I think there's some really interesting bridges that connect that formative period with our own and that should prove really compelling to students in the classroom and to hopefully you know readers in a, a larger framework who are thinking about the past but simultaneously able to look up and gaze at pictures framed on their walls or in their offices or think about you know celebrity culture and magazines checkout line at the grocery store or on the movie screen there's so many different aspects of our lives in which i think we can connect with this sense of, of 
the visual and the ways in which people rely on it, trust it in, in some ways, but also are equally suspicious of it. People think that that's a modern incarnation, a development in the aftermath of something like Photoshop and other digital editing software, but it actually starts with the inception of these visual forms like photography, where people aren't sure exactly what they can trust out of a given image. And by ex extension, people have difficulty figuring out exactly what it is that our appearances or our perception really tell us about one another and our character, our inner selves, or the concept of, of truth writ large. What can you glean from an image? What's reliable? Is there such a thing as a singular truth that can be derived from it? Can we read a person's capacity or character from their outward image. That's a very fraught question that I think stays with us today, but it had a direct role in definitions of immigration access to the United States, in concepts of human equality or the opposite, theories mm -hmm. of you know racial and ethnic inequality. And all of these are really taking hold in formative and, and very lasting ways in my time period, in the 1800s. So the reason why you focused on the 19th century is because of its relative importance. I mean, I, I will say that I think just about every historian is going to make a bid for their period as the really formative one. Everyone says, well, you know, there's always you know change throughout time, but my period is really the one. And so I, I'm cognizant as I'm speaking of this essentially a cliche, <laughs> but I do firmly believe that the 19th century is absolutely key to understanding the makings of what we now consider the modern world or modernity. And you would be at quite a loss if you were to say, approach American history as a student, either, you know, a formal student in a college or simply in your, your reading selections and jump straight from say, the colonial period of the American Revolution to, you know, something in the 20th century. And it's not just a matter of chronology. You would be missing the entire foundation of the Industrial Revolution, the spread of capitalism, transportation and communication revolutions, and all of these cultural developments that are bound up with those changes and that can instigate them in many cases. Let's take a step back. What is a visual and why is it unique? What is a, a visual image or what is the visual register? Depends on however you would like to define it. Okay, what is, what is the visual? I should note here that one of my colleagues at the University of Chicago, Tom Mitchell, known as W.J.T. Mitchell, has really had a formative effect on my thinking in terms of this concept of the visual. Mitchell has written about the ways in which the verbal and the visual have intersected and informed one another. And I would argue as a historian that is in a contextually specific way, that we have to understand the context in which people are encountering, encountering a given picture and its caption perhaps, or its interpretation, its dominant interpretation in a given community or culture. And so there's some, to some extent, there, there may be some futility in treating something like the verbal and the visual, the visual as two purely distinct ontological categories, that they are often bound up with one another. So for me, visual culture entails both images, but also ways of seeing the world, literally and figuratively, that our response to any given image, our interpretations of what constitutes beauty or its opposite, 
are all informed by the societies in which we live and the specific communities in many cases. In the 70s, an art historian, Michael Baxendahl, famously came up with the concept of the period I in his book, Painting and Experience in 15th Century Italy. And it was a foundational work of visual culture that essentially argued that vision itself is not a historic, but rather contextual, that each society throughout time shapes a viewer's perspective and therefore his or her response to a given image. So Tom Mitchell has written that vision is not simply a mechanical operation of the eyeball, but a complex cognitive process that has to be learned. This concept of the period I has since been sort of developed further to understand that we can't just flatten out any given period itself, that there are various communities bound up in structures and inequalities of power that are going to have different responses to an image, even in a diachronic, or I'm sorry, in a synchronic context. That is, even if different communities existing in the same time period look at the same image, just because they live in the same time period doesn't mean they're all going to respond to it the same way. And so that's an important component, I think, of this aspect of particularly visual culture or visual studies. Martin Jay, an intellectual historian from UC Berkeley, has called this the pictorial turn. This is a scholarly understanding that uh, we can really locate many aspects of visual perception in these contextually specific formats and, and think through them as scholars um, from our various fields. Let's go one level deeper and talk about why a visual is unique and maybe sure. in that analysis juxtapose a visual with text. So I, I think that what's really key here is the notion of the ways in which the eye operates at a much faster rate than any other perceptual register in the human sensorium. So there are more nerve endings in the eye. It, it operates at a, a much greater speed than any other sense that we possess. And Martin Jay has written on this in ways that have really influenced me in thinking about the importance of vision. So Freud conjectured that the, the really fateful transition in human evolution was when we started walking around on our two feet, when we transitioned to standing mammals as opposed to creatures on all fours, because smell is, of course, the dominant register for creatures like dogs. So in transitioning to standing on our two feet, humans became reliant on the visual register in order to discern potential threats on the horizon, the approach of predators, things like that. So I go into some of the science of this in the introduction to consuming identities. And I, I think that it has remained with us biologically because sight remains this paramount sense in terms of the development of the human embryo uh, and being, of course, a central means by which we tend to navigate our society or culture. And so that predisposition to the visual couples with a diverse urban environment like San Francisco, the subject of, of my book, where you'll have a cross-section of people from a number of different communities who obviously don't share the same language necessarily. But the visual is the one register that everyone typically shares, that people can access these images posted in public, featured in various ways, on display. And even if people are deriving their own particular interpretations or conclusions about those images, 
they remain a sort of lingua franca for a given society. And that becomes incredibly important when we think about the direction of change and growth in a country like the U.S., where San Francisco is uh, representative of things to come. That is, the United States is becoming more and more urbanized. More people are inhabiting areas defined as urban. And you have an increasingly diverse conglomeration of people in a given city space, where not only do you have different representatives of various languages and cultures, ethnicities and races, but you have uh, very different perspectives given people's backgrounds. People are coming together in cities of strangers where you don't necessarily know one another and you increasingly rely on the visual register as your means of navigating that space, of figuring out who to trust and how, and of how you project your own identity, your status, who you are to uh, essentially a, a cast of strangers. In your definition of a visual includes anything from a photo to a text-based type of input, such as an article, a painting, etc. So I, you know, I understand Tom Mitchell's point about how text could potentially function as uh, one aspect in a spectrum of imagery, but I'm much more interested in, in my own work on various forms of mass-reproduced visual media, such as photographs, lithographs. There are many different genres within the category of photography. There's the stereographs, which are essentially the precursors to what people might know today as the view master. So two almost identical images set right next to each other that when they're put at a certain distance from your eyes, simulate three-dimensionality. I'm interested in the element of spectacle of uh, theatrical performances, which is not the same thing as, as images, but celebrities occupy this interesting interstitial space where they themselves are often photographed either um, as an element of their, their roles on stage or as their sort of uh, projection of their private identities or a, a sort of public persona. And so you see them occupying a really important place on this spectrum between live performance and spectacle and visual imagery. And so that's really what I'm interested in. I'm interested in the mass-reproduced visual images in no small part because of the theoretical inspiration of Walter Benjamin, a scholar who was operating in Germany in the, the early decades of the 20th century, who remains incredibly pivotal, I think, for many people working within this realm of the visual turn or the pictorial turn or visual culture because of his foundational work, the, the most famous essay being from 1936, The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction. It's since been retranslated as The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproducibility, I think it is. But it's a really foundational essay that I think is still flexing its, its influence on all sorts of scholars who delve into this realm of what are the implications, not only of imagery or of art, but of technology as applied to those images. What is it that changes when a given image can become reproducible on a substantial scale, when a certain mass of people can access it and it's no longer sequestered away in halls of, of wealth, privilege, and power, as so many paintings or other works were for a very long time in our uh, human history? 
And from a historical perspective, I think this is quite helpful to create more context around the notion of a visual. What is the history of visuals and, and particularly the sort of real-time capture of some instantiation? So there are a couple of different ways to look at this. The ways in which we have meted out human-rendered illustrations goes back many centuries, actually much longer in the history of Asian countries like China than it does in the West. So woodblock printing has occupied you know, multiple forms over time, and I get into some of this in the introduction to my book. In the West, this is increasingly bound up with the advent of engraving techniques, things that go back to at least the 16th and 17th centuries, but which were hampered, again, by technological limitations on reproduction. So you have something like the Pelham print of the Boston Massacre, which is then plagiarized very quickly by Paul Revere. So most people identify it with Paul Revere. And there is at least enough of a technological capacity for reproducing that print that it really does take on a life of its own, at least in the context of a revolutionary era in New England and perhaps beyond in the British colonies um, at a very tense moment with the colonial authorities. But there have been scholars who have written on the limitations of reproduction uh, capacity, essentially something that harkens back to the age of the Renaissance until you get to the turn of the 19th century. And it's 1798 is when you see the advent of lithography, which is really a much faster and more efficient method of rendering these artist-drawn illustrations into print using limestone, essentially, as a, as a printing block. And then you have the advent of steam printing technology, uh, which takes hold in the 1820s and especially the 30s. You have mass-reproduced, mechanically-reproduced paper. All of this is really critical. And then, of course, in 1839, the advent of the photographic process. So photography was in development in a number of countries simultaneously. There are tinkerers and inventors everywhere from England to Brazil to Japan who are operating unbeknownst to one another, developing systems for figuring out how to capture an image on a plate, essentially. But this is formally introduced to the world with Daguerre, Louis Daguerre in France, who was working alongside Niesiphon Nieps, uh, who died. And so Daguerre really becomes the uh, eponymous inventor, the originator of the form. And the first photographs are known as daguerreotypes. And they're not mass reproducible, but they quickly develop the technology to secure images, phot photographs, in a means that would enable mass reproduction through a, a wet plate negative. And that's secured in England with Frederick Scott Archer by 1851-52. Uh, it spreads very rapidly. And that's really the advent of this photographic age that couples with all of those other technological innovations to produce a modern era of mass reproduction and of uh, imagery on a scale that people had never seen before. And of course, this is bound up with the Industrial Revolution because it requires something of a, a middle class, people with some small amount of disposable income and time, uh, even a small amount of time to be able to purchase images, not only of themselves and of their loved ones of one another, but of people who are essentially total strangers, either celebrities, infamous criminals, and others, who they might want to look at for any number of reasons. 
And so I think that's really the beginnings of this age in which you have virtual relationships with people that are posited, in some cases, purely on a visual register that isn't necessarily coupled with any kind of formal correspondence that might be couched in the framework of captions in printed books or pamphlets, but is not necessarily so. As soon as you have the advent of certain kinds of photographs like the carte de visite, which is essentially what we're talking about when you look at a, a baseball card, that comes about in the 1860s and produces what they call cardomania because people are so fascinated with that particular visual form and it's it's easily portable, it's tradable, and you can put them in albums and create your own captions to them. They don't necessarily come pre-interpreted for you. So there are a number of ways in which this takes a life, takes on a life of its own in 19th century culture. How does this mass production lead to a growth in visual culture? Actually, before we even go there, how do you define visual culture? I'm defining visual culture, at least in in my work, and this may vary between scholars who are operating in this field. I interpret visual culture both as, and I I should say again, I specifically, of course, am, am interested, at least in my work thus far, on images of people, but that I'm interested in both artist-mediated images like lithographs or woodblock engravings, for example, and in photographs of various genres. So I'm interested in, in these photographs and artist renderings, but not nearly for the fact of their production or um, the context in which they are produced, the format in which people would have encountered them, but the ways in which they couple with and seem to inform people's ways of reading the world uh, of themselves and of one another. So that's the problems of perception category that I, I spoke of earlier. The notion that people are applying these images in ways that seem to inform their understandings of how you can read character on a person's face or of the simulation of intimacy. Um, This is particularly true in the case of either pornographic imagery or of celebrity and celebrity images, whether those are theatrical stars or infamous characters. The notion that you've somehow come to understand a person through their image, that you can read appearances in such a way as to decipher someone's character. That's part and parcel of this visual culture, because I think to understand this notion of an entire culture built around images, we have to know that culture is this representational, symbolic and linguistic system that is as capable of instigating political, economic and social processes as it is of reflecting them. And that's uh, largely inspired by uh, work I've read by Margaret Dikovitskaya, who did a wonderful volume on visual culture in which she interviewed several of the central scholars in the field, like Martin Jay and and Tom Mitchell. And so I I take that as my baseline concept of what constitutes culture. And when you impart this visual layer to it, I think that you're really examining both the images themselves, but the ways in which they are bound up with a contextually rooted sense of perception. Um, The ways in which people in the 19th century thought that images could either provide some evidence of someone's personality or that they could be misleading. Um, so there's an expression I often reference in my book 
uh, a true likeness. The notion of whether or not someone's portrait, photographic portrait, was a true likeness. Uh, and there was a reference there in their letters accompanying these images uh, and in many, you know, printed commentaries, articles about what it is that we can really discern from either our own appearances or those of people around us, how we read uh, a look in someone's facial expression, the way that they carry themselves. And this then informs, I think, it percolates out into Victorian culture or urban culture specifically in, in certain contexts. Human beings have a relationship with visuals and images. And this goes back to the very beginning of our species. And ultimately today we have sort of photography and real-time capture with a smartphone. Mm -hmm. How has the relationship between human beings and images sort of intersected with and, and influenced society, especially when it comes to 19th, 20th, and, and, and 21st century, sort of more modernity, if you will? There are so many different ways to answer this. And I'm, this is one of the reasons that I chose to organize my book thematically, because I think it gives you an illustration of the different facets of this interaction with images that you see starting to take hold in the 19th century. You can see this in terms of the ways that people are defining human equality or inequality. So increasingly you see an association because of this very robust marketplace for for pornographic images in a city like San Francisco, but in many cities across the world, people often remark that prostitution is the, the oldest uh, profession there is. But what you see build up alongside that in cities like San Francisco in the 19th century is a robust culture of of voyeurism or of temptation that is posited on a visual register independent of or perhaps as a precursor to any kind of, of sexual acts. So if you walked into any Gold Rush saloon in 1850s San Francisco, for instance, the odds are there would be some very explicit paintings of naked ladies hanging on the walls. And in some cases, as I document in my book, you have these cafés chantants, which are nominally inspired by some sort of, of Parisian example, in which you have young women who are employed to pose beneath images of lovely young women and to essentially serve as the incarnation of those images for the thrill of the patrons of that particular saloon who are engaging in, in gambling and drinking and, and sex is the, you know, the third component of this particular economy. A very robust one that certainly extends beyond San Francisco, but this is uh, a place that's overwhelmingly male um, and overwhelmingly you know, young men in its first decades. And so it's particularly pronounced and robust there. So you see the ways in which images are harnessed as part and parcel of a, a sexual economy that is becoming very sophisticated in many ways and variegated um, in the sense that you didn't necessarily have to engage directly in prostitution in order to benefit from the kinds of allurements or temptations that are proffered as a, a viewer, somebody who could either purchase images to take home or gaze upon them in public sites like the, the gambling saloon. But you see this in crime and punishment where uh, you not only have spectacular kinds of punishments 
in mid-19th century San Francisco, public hangings that people coming there from places like New England had not seen in their lifetimes. And they're not only occurring in these public theaters attended by women and children, but preserved in the form of letter sheets, which are essentially a 19th century precursor to the postcard. And they are meant very explicitly to capture noteworthy events, events that are deemed for any given reason, something uh, that might be of interest to people in other places that were not present at the you know, actual, in this case, a public hanging itself, or who, for people who for any number of reasons want to preserve some souvenir, which is French, of course, for a memory, some record of that event, whether they approve of it or not, and who in many cases want to document something of interest or potential historic significance where they were themselves were present. And they want to send this back to friends and family in their hometown, because almost everyone in San Francisco comes from somewhere else. And so this provides this very visceral means of doing so, where certainly people had described public spectacles and punishments like hangings uh, in correspondence going back you know, hundreds of years before Gold Rush San Francisco. But these letter sheets provide a new vehicle through which to do so. And it's an interesting tension because you have you know, thousands of letter sheets printed, all of which depict the same image in a given run and which could be purchased in bulk. I found the advertisements for this. But the entire purpose of selling them at dry goods stores, at different stationers and other uh, merchants is for people to write their own individual letters home. So each letter written on the stationery is unique, but the stationery itself is mass produced and identical. And one could say the same for the portraits of celebrities, popular theatrical stars, uh, which are also produced en masse, but which people can then adapt to their own purposes. They might put them up on the wall if it's someone they admire. They might put them in uh, increasingly popular albums, photograph albums that are sold uh, all over town, um, throughout the country, really. Um, and people sometimes caption these themselves or position them alongside more private images of friends and family. Sometimes they arrange them in collections of people they either find interesting or admirable for any number of reasons. So you start seeing this process of fashioning of mass-produced items into particular stories or contexts that can be somehow anchored to some individual consumer's specific way of seeing the world or of explaining it to others. You can see the fascination with images along the same lines of what selfies have come to represent today in the way that people are posing for photographs. So they're not technically selfies, except that people are commissioning these portraits of themselves. So even though you have to go to a studio and a photographer has to take the picture, there's every bit as much of intent involved that, and perhaps more so because you have to make the trip to a studio and think about what you're going to wear and how you're going to pose. And, of course, the photographer then has some sort of nominal role in, in all of this, but oftentimes that was quite a negotiation. And people will have these images then reproduced or will then put them into letters, uh, alongside letters, that they send home or send them by separate express and then the letter follows that will discuss in detail how they think they look. Can you believe how long my whiskers are? 
take a look at my wrinkled shirt sleeves. Uh, oftentimes with San Francisco gold rush miners, they would revel in some of the nonconformist aspects of their appearance and talk about their role in this internationally famous event like the gold rush. And so it's, it's, I think it's akin to what we see today in various types of social media where people are positioning themselves visually so as to define themselves in very specifically consciously curated ways. They want to either place themselves at famous sites, look at me, I'm at the Grand Canyon, I'm in front of the Eiffel Tower, or they want to position their identities as occupying a particular niche. Either they happen to, you know, uh, have certain fashion sense, or they want a curated image of themselves that shows themselves off to their best advantage. The entire phenomenon of dating websites, I think, is one that comes to mind. In the 19th century, people carried out entire courtships by daguerreotype. Um, and the exchange of a daguerreotype or any kind of photographic portrait was understood to be a token of intimacy to the point where there were cases of husbands who had become extremely upset and sometimes violent upon finding another man's portrait um, in the personal effects of their wives in their possession because that was a, a signifier of a, a deeper emotional uh, and perhaps physical connection with somebody outside the bounds of a given relationship. Uh, and you still see, obviously, various instances of this today. So it really takes on a life of its own in terms of every aspect of the human life cycle. So one of my chapters in Consuming Identities is devoted to the ways in which images increasingly come to occupy various points along the human life cycle, both important and sometimes daily unimportant events. So everything from a baby picture that essentially establishes your existence in the world, your presence, declares you to a larger society on behalf of your parents, to a death portrait, uh, which was quite common in the 19th century. And parents whose children died in infancy uh, would often commission Memento mori, a phenomenon that goes back to the Middle Ages, but which becomes photographic with the photographic age. So rather than painted still lifes, which would couple testaments to mortality and the finite nature of life, so fruit that can age alongside skulls or flowers that can wilt, suddenly you have the capacity to produce a, a memento of a, a beloved child who was lost early in life or a, a grown man, perhaps in his 20s or 30s, uh, who passed away often from disease in a place like San Francisco, separated from his family by hundreds or thousands of miles, um, and which might present the only kind of closure the family has, because it would take them months to journey out to the city by the bay. And right. this is their one opportunity to look upon their their son for the last time, or to look upon his final resting place. There are a few photos in my work of friends or loved ones posing beside the graves of young men who had died and were cut down in the prime of their lives. And these images are then sent home to family as forms of, of closure in many respects. So you mentioned the selfie, which is a 21st century phenomenon. How would you juxtapose the interaction between human beings and visuals and images with respect to the 19th, 20th and 21st century? What's been the evolution in that time frame? I think that uh, 
from the beginning, one of the points I've, I've strived to make in my work is that many aspects that we might consider of a, a later incarnation are actually present at the incarnation of the medium itself, that people are consciously crafting their own appearance and identity for posterity, and that they know this when they pose for an image of themselves. There is an important development, at least in terms of photography, with the handheld camera, which comes about in the 1880s and spreads very quickly. And as exposure times shorten over the second half of the 19th century, you can see more informal photography develop where a snapshot becomes something, you know, um, even possible. That, to some extent, takes photography out of the exclusive hands of formal practitioners, the photographers themselves, and opens it up by the very end of the 19th century and certainly by the 20th century to become a, a much more accessible practice. It was already wildly popular, though, I need to make clear, in the 19th century. And throughout the second half of the 19th century, Americans in particular are taking more photographs than any other country in the world. And photography spreads all around the world to every continent outside of Antarctica. So even with photography's rapid spread, it's technically the practice of these photographers who at least have enough training to understand the workings of the chemicals themselves. It actually doesn't require any sort of formal degree per se, but it becomes even more accessible over the course of the 20th century with the handheld camera and with these rapid exposure times although the exposure times decrease pretty significantly in the course of the 1850s, 60s, and 70s as well. But of course, that doesn't do away with formal portrait photography either. It just expands this field into a number of different layers, right? Where to this day, parents will take their kids, dress up the whole family in some cases, mm. and march off to a photographer's studio to, or you know, to an appointment with a formal photographer, even if it's supposed to be outside in a more casual setting to take what are supposed to be really nice formal images either for holiday cards or for framing at home and almost everyone now has a camera in the form of their phone and so it, it, it's expanded in terms of the, the number of images people are taking I think in the digital age you don't have the limitations of film either and so that itself then I think broadens this editing process that people can undertake themselves, which was, you know, once the province of professional photographers and is itself now expanded. So you see elements of, of, of that in terms of, there are multiple forms of photography that I could speak to, for mm -hmm. instance, journalism and photography. So with the more rapid exposure times, you have the ability to capture movements on battlefields that you just didn't in the 19th century, where they had to find other means of trying to document the rapid fire pace of warfare. They couldn't really do so in the midst of battle in either the Crimean War or the Civil War. So what you would have are images of cannonballs strewn across the road. And as it turns out, scholars have subsequently discovered that photographers often staged those images, would, would move the cannonballs into certain shots. And even, even more grisly example is Alexander Gardner, Matthew Brady, and other photographers in the Civil War who would stage shots of corpses uh, lying on battlefields. They would move corpses into various positions in order to get the perfect image. Now, this is all posited on exposure times that don't enable them to capture the action of the image. That changes quickly in the course of the 20th century. You see more battlefield photography that's captured in the moment and getting more action scenes. And of course, then the advent of moving images, which also derives from the Bay Area 
and the pivotal work of a very eccentric English photographer who was operating in the Bay Area during the gold rush, Edward Moybridge, who develops this rapid motion technology for taking images initially of uh, Leland Stanford, the railroad baron and California governor, who had a, an extensive stable of horses in Palo Alto. And Moybridge is commissioned to do these um, stop-motion photography studies. The legendary story is to settle a bet as to whether or not a horse, when he was in full gallop, whether all four hooves left the ground at the same time. And indeed they did. But those sorts of studies then give way to the development of motion picture technology in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And of course, then expand this capacity for uh, visual culture to really, um, I think, fascinate people, but also provide any number of documentary purposes in society and culture. Has there been a negative impact of this rise of visual culture? And uh, I guess more pertinent to, are there any lessons from history that could have prevented negative spillover effects from social media platforms? So the first part of your question is really important because we're operating in a century in which shadow slavery obviously exists uh, until the Civil War. And the one-drop rule in American society is a paramount indicator of the ways in which your rights as an American citizen, as a human being, as an immigrant to the United States, are posited on social and cultural uh, interpretations of your character and your capacity, uh, and they are anchored to physical appearance. So it's incredibly important to understand the ways in which these understandings of, of human appearance then factored into a society in which you had, by the early decades, 1820s and 30s, uh, universal white manhood suffrage. So your rights as an American citizen are very much defined both by, by gender and by interpretations of your racial identity. And this becomes increasingly fraught over the course of the 19th century because I think a medium like photography can operate in diametrically opposed ways. In some cases, it is couched in a racist narrative that poses certain racial types for the amusement uh, and fascination of a, a mass market that is accustomed to viewing people from different backgrounds in very caricatured ways. Um, and you see this with certain depictions of the Chinese population in San Francisco, either Chinese Americans or recent Chinese immigrants that are caricatured in the captions to their images. Or oftentimes you'll see artist rendered depictions of Chinese people that are posited on distortions. Photographs themselves could actually humanize non-white groups that had often been stigmatized in American history and culture by documenting their humanity and the specifics of their physical appearances that could not be easily distorted or homogenized into some sort of, of caricatured type. So it could cut both ways. But increasingly, you start to see over the 1870s and 80s in a place like San Francisco, you don't see as much in the way of photographic representations of groups like the Chinese. You see much more artist-rendered depictions of them, such as the San Francisco Wasp periodical, one of the very earliest full-color illustrated periodicals in the country, which often lambasts various aspects of uh, the Gilded Age, of socioeconomic inequality. These are the famous cartoons of uh, the corporate trusts and tycoons as 
hungry monsters, uh, octopuses, uh, and other kinds of creatures that are devouring natural resources and the terrain, depriving average everyday working Americans of their equal opportunities for a shot at self-sufficiency in the American dream. But just as commonly would scapegoat certain non-white groups, particularly the Chinese, and would do so in ways that distorted their features, um, sometimes even reduced them to the status of animals. And so this then percolates not only into the culture, but reverberates in the politics of Chinese exclusion, which begins as a demand on the part of the Working Men's Party and other groups in San Francisco and in California, but takes on a national level. And it begins with exclusionary legislation like the Page Act in 1875, which targets criminals, but also any women who are identified as prostitutes and specifically associates Asian women and Chinese women as prostitutes, presumes that they they are if they're trying to come into the country. And this is in no small part posited on the kinds of images that people had generated of Chinese sex workers in places like San Francisco and that increased these cultural and social associations. And so that's the first federal exclusionary immigration legislation, and it's followed by 1882 with the Chinese Exclusion Act. And so there and in racialized depictions of African Americans that persist long after emancipation, and in many cases intensify in the second half of the century during the period known as Jim Crow, you see the ways in which these arbiters of visual culture or artists and publishers are seeking to either profit from a racist climate or, in many cases, to perpetuate that climate. Generations of white American children are inculcated in practices of bigotry and discrimination in no small part because of cartoons that are aimed at them to teach them about the differences between human beings who have uh, different appearances. So those particular kinds of visual uh, hierarchies have vast implications for society and politics and law, and in many cases are important and foundational components of these inequalities of power. And the same can be said for uh, various depictions of, of gender and what it is that constitutes femininity in an age when women were supposed to be reticent and not overly assertive or present in public, or they could be castigated or shamed uh, for it, and often in these sort of you know, forms of visual stigma. So there were all sorts of nefarious implications or consequences of some of these tropes and stereotypes that emerge. And stereotype itself is a form rooted in visual technology. It's the ability to reproduce uh, a particular image. Often this was accorded to banknotes in the early years of the 19th century, but quickly takes on a life of its own in the culture as a means of, of imparting these uh, sort of pseudoscientific understandings of human character and, and racial identity. In terms of avoiding them, the lessons of history, it's obviously a cliche to say that you shouldn't judge a book by its cover. Mm -hmm. I, I think that people in the 19th century are aware that so many of these assertions could be misleading, even in their own time. And you had activists, people like Frederick Douglass, who in the work of scholars like John Stauffer, demonstrated that he's actually the most photographed individual of the 19th century, more so than George Armstrong Custer, who I think comes a close second, more so than many other figures like Lincoln, who we might suspect. And there's an understanding there that on the part of 
activists like Douglas that you can and should take charge of your own representation in public, your own sense of identity, to prove to people not only your humanity, but your dignity, and to push back on many of these homogenizing caricatures. You obviously came out with earth-shattering book called Consuming Identities, Visual Culture in 19th Century San Francisco. Maybe talk about briefly the genesis of it and what are you trying to convey? What's the message? The message in a nutshell is that images were vitally important to 19th century Americans and American immigrants, that they occupied a formative role in the way that people shaped their own identities and came to understand one another on interpersonal levels, but on much larger levels across American culture, society, and certainly percolating into aspects of law, uh, of uh, the economy. And that historians have often missed that vitally important point um, because for too long they've taken illustrations as self-evident afterthoughts, essentially, in their work. Oftentimes historians don't really think about the illustrations in uh, their books until they reach the publishing stage and they're negotiating with their editor and various archives, but seldom do they play a really central role in their formative analyses. That's been changing since the 1980s and 90s, which is really the epicenter of this uh, visual turn, or pictorial turn, that scholars have started to take, but it's still, I think, in its formative roles, and there's a lot of anxiety about it, which I can certainly talk about. Consuming Identities pinpoints San Francisco as a particularly rich contextual site for understanding this pivotal role that images and that visual perception played in people's daily lives and in this rapidly changing 19th century society, an increasingly urban and diverse uh, country, or one that would become so over the course of the 19th century and on into the 20th and beyond, because it's one of the most diverse places in the world at mid-century by dint of the gold rush, and because it's a place that's really defined by distance. It's the site to which people are flocking from every continent outside of Antarctica, and aside from a rapidly dwindling indigenous population in California, which in and of itself plays a role in the kinds of visual images that are produced in this place and then percolated out into the rest of the country and indeed around the world. It's incredibly important for understanding how this visual culture develops and spreads over time in urban centers around the world. It's been overlooked because I think scholars have a tendency to look to the capitals of culture as understood by conventional wisdom, and understandably so. These are epicenters of uh, of human growth, activity, culture, places like London, Paris, and New York. And they are vitally important places, but they don't serve as sufficient placeholders for the entire story. We have to look to unusual centers, unexpected in many cases, then and now, of both economy, society, and culture, like San Francisco, to understand the true ramifications of this sea change that's taking hold in many different respects. And that visual culture is a central means by which we can understand many of those other changes taking hold. (music) 
you've studied the celebrity phenomenon and celebrity culture. Right. Why does it exist? What I found really interesting when I first began looking at this, I should say that I, I began this entire thing as a graduate student at UC Berkeley, working primarily with David Henkin, who's been an incredibly inspiring cultural historian and mentor for me. I was reading Emerson, actually, Ralph Waldo Emerson, and on representative men specifically, and was interested in the ways in which he was trying to adapt the work of, of Thomas Carlyle on heroes and hero worship. And I saw something happening with Emerson that seemed, he seemed uncomfortable about the entire concept of celebrity, which I, if I recall correctly, I think he only mentions the term once, maybe twice in that work. Um, Emerson was trying to take the concept of hero worship as Thomas Carlyle, a Scottish scholar and, and historian, had conceptualized it and meted out in a democratic context. He really wanted to believe in the capacity of Republican government and society for changing up the ways in which heroes had been essentially handed down to the populace from on high, um, the divine uh, power, divine right of kings, or the uh, ordained pope, the general like Napoleon, this notion of this, you know, a very authoritarian, hierarchical view of, of who gains prominence in uh, society in any given period. Uh, and he wanted it to be more of a meritocratic order in the generations to come, in no small part, you know, as a result of the American Revolution. And I sensed a certain tension, anxiety uh, about the ways in which that notion of a, a bottom-up approach to who becomes celebrated in any given time period might be posited on factors that aren't strictly intellectual merit or hard work in the Protestant work ethic. And so I, I started looking at that, and then I sort of segged into this world of, of celebrity culture, theater, and images that were produced out of 19th century San Francisco, because it was proximal to me. It was you know, accessible as a Berkeley graduate student. And then I quickly came to discover that the mountain of images that had been produced in 19th century San Francisco was even larger than what I was able to examine, um, and many of which were cut down by the catastrophic earthquake and then especially the fire. Uh, of 1906. And I realized that, you know, for such a mountain of primary sources to have survived, that I was really looking at a small subset of that which originally existed. And that sort of led me down this trail. I think that in my dissertation uh, version of, of this story, um, what became the book, Consuming Identities, I had two epigraphs. And one was Walt Whitman on um, the history of the future, uh, essentially a very democratic, optimistic view of, of who would have their story told in future years, in no small part because of you know democratic government and society. But the other quote was from Michael Chabon from Maps and Legends, uh, a great book, in which he talks about how entertainment is bad for us. Uh, it's bad for our soul. Um, the ways in which people have decried entertainment, and I would add here specifically celebrity, and by people I specifically mean scholars, that because it was seen as epiphenomenal, it was seen as ephemeral and superficial, uh, not really a material component of economy or politics or society, uh, that many scholars deigned to really interrogate this category of mass culture and society. This 
starts to change in the 1920s, 30s and, and beyond with Marxist scholars like Theodore Adorno, Horkenheimer, members of the so-called Frankfurt School. Uh, but they're analyzing mass culture, at least initially, through very skeptical materialist or Marxist lens. But there's still this presumption that you don't have uh, a self-generated culture that, that people are being told who to worship in their society. And that has since changed. One thing I noticed in researching this study was that you, you have this very uh, interesting etymological change in the definition of celebrity, and it occurs, at least according to the Oxford English Dictionary, right around the mid-19th century, where celebrity is no longer uh, a quality of being renowned. Um, it shifts into a noun, um, that is, a person who is known or celebrated. Daniel Borstein famously termed it, you know, somebody who's famous for being famous. I would refer people who are interested in this evolution of the term to both Raymond Williams's classic keywords, but especially the new keywords volume, which sort of revises some of these classic key terms and tries to postulate, you know, where they came from or how they changed. And so in the new keywords volume, you see this uh, definition from Graham Turner of celebrity as in one sense, a mode of representation. So a celebrity is a, you know, a kind of cultural figure who is visible through the media. And I realized that that mid 19th century shift in the concept of celebrity from this, you know, 17th century incarnation of, you know, an observance of rites and ceremonies to a person, an, an incarnation, a public persona, that that was very much bound up with technologies of representation. If you think about celebrities today, this is somebody who is recognizable visually to some critical mass of the population. And that tension between their private identity and their public life or public persona uh, remains to the point that I think most people have some sort of story about a celebrity sighting, you know, somebody that you saw in the flesh. So I, I became interested in the celebrity as part and parcel of both this new era of visual mass reproducibility and of society. In the colonial period, uh, you certainly had traveling theater troops, but the real star of the show was the playwright, people like Shakespeare. Those were the works that people recognized, you of text that would have made their works known at least to uh, you know a, a certain threshold number. Emergence of this middle class and disposable income and a really robust modern entertainment economy, the emergence of uh, the world of leisure, the theater, P.T. Barnum, who occupies a central role in the promotion, marketing. What do you see as frontiers in terms of research in studies of uh, visuals? I hope that we can foster a more of an interdisciplinary dialogue, perhaps collaborations, increasing number of collaborations uh, among scholars of ostensibly different fields. I've actually just begun a conversation with um, original and path-breaking in many respects, and who is technically a professor of, uh, I think, uh, journalism at Hampshire College. I was just thinking of Michael Lessie, um, who has done a lot of really important path-breaking work in the history of visual images, the role that they've played in temporary context and the ways in which we interpret them and think about them. 
and he himself is a longtime friend of Walker Evans. Technically, he's a professor of literary journalism. There have been a number of collaborations or dialogues fostered in the last 10 or so years, or 10 to 20 years. So there was a roundtable in the Journal of American Art that essentially tried to put historians like Joshua Brown into conversation with art historians like Patricia Hill. So I think that's been a really helpful advent in thinking about the ways that we might go forward in trying to breach some of these traditional disciplinary walls or methodological walls. There's a lot of anxiety between historians who are not necessarily formally trained in uh, the aspects of reading an image or thinking about its various attributes or the background of a, a given artist. And of art historians who, at least traditionally, this is changing quickly, but who have traditionally been trained to uh, analyze or approach formal art or high art as opposed to what they call vernacular art, the notion of everyday ephemeral mass-produced images or categories of images writ large as opposed to a particular oeuvre of a certain photographer or artist. And so this, this meeting of, of the minds is increasingly, I think, gaining hold, um, gaining ground among the scholarship. And we have to do more of it because I don't think that any particular discipline is going to afford a, a totalizing view. It really requires conversations across and between these different fields in order to fully appreciate all the dynamics and intricacies of uh, approaching a, a perceptual register like the visual. Moving on to the last section, what motivates you? The obvious answer, and this actually plays into my analysis of images in history, is my family. I think that people really carried powerful reactions to images, particularly the detail, uh, unprecedented detail of photographs, because they captured loved ones who were often far away, from whom they were separated for long periods of time. And so my three-year-old daughter, Maya, my husband, Eric, obviously, uh, my family motivate me in profound ways, my colleagues, and the ways in which many of them are brave enough to transcend the confines, the bubble effect of various strictures, either within the field of history or within various subfields that we each occupy. I'm inspired by the kind of courageousness it takes to branch out and discover new approaches, even to the same subject matter. And what drives me is this desire to show future generations of historians and other scholars how they might begin to appreciate the contextual role that something like images can play within their own time, within their own context, to remind people that these aren't simply self-evident illustrations, that they had interpretations all their own from the people who either produced them or first laid eyes on them, and that we have to be cognizant of that. I, I'm motivated by, I think, a need to prompt these kinds of, of conversations and to push back against some of the uh, conventional wisdom that dictates that, that historians need not venture into these realms of, of what's sometimes conceived of as the purview of art history or of 
visual culture studies, cinema and media studies, uh, and the province of different departments. I think fostering those conversations and having to make the rounds in the library to all the different sections is a good thing. It might be daunting mm. and challenging, but in the end, it's, it's worthwhile because it's the only way we ever really attain new breakthroughs and insights is by challenging ourselves and our comfort zone. How do you allocate your time? This is a very tricky question for uh, an academic, particularly a junior faculty person, because there is a zero-sum game to some extent. You only have so many hours in the day, and the pressure, particularly on a junior faculty scholar, is to spend the bulk of that time developing your own scholarship, your own publications. But the originary point of academia itself, of one's profession as a teacher, is, of course, to educate. And so I think it's vitally important that we spend time not only in the classroom teaching our students, as we are contractually obligated to do, but of cultivating their own projects and means for developing theses that will, in turn, change the way that I or my colleagues may look at a given time period or subject. That's critically important. So I value the interactions I've had with my graduate and undergraduate students in a number of institutions, Berkeley, Colby College, uh, the University of Chicago. That's been a really vital and robust part of my intellectual life and has then reached dividends in, I think, my own scholarship. So that's an important part of it. I, in terms of my own work, I've certainly spent time not only poring over the archival staples, manuscript correspondence, photographs, but also trying to obtain high-resolution scans of images because another way of doing this kind of visual research is by looking closely, quite literally, not only at what the, the texts and the letters tell us, uh, but at details that may have gone overlooked in the images themselves. And that's an important component, I think, of doing visual culture work in a given historical context. Which non-consensus view do you hold near and dear? The view, at least in terms of historians, I would say this is not consensus or remains so, although it's changing, that we have to consider different perceptual registers, not exclusively or predominantly text, when we look at or examine the archival evidence from any given time period. We have to approach either visual sources or other kinds of primary sources on their own terms, uh, as complicated or as daunting as that might be, in order to really come at a fuller sense of truth and understanding of a given time period and its culture, its priorities, its values, its mindset. I firmly believe that we have to breach the invisible walls of various disciplines, even though scholars are hired and practice under the auspices of their expertise in a given field, that as daunting or as intimidating as it might be to start branching out into other fields, it's vitally important to try and foster these kinds of interdisciplinary conversations with people that are interested in similar questions or which may help us develop better questions in our own work. What's the biggest trade-off in your professional existence? That's a hard question. I think that... You may punt on it. <laughs> so there are two. I can, I can think of two. One is the 
pressures on one's time between teaching and scholarship. I think that you really have to think carefully about how you balance your time and uh, what you choose to prioritize. The other is that in choosing to focus on visual culture, it certainly requires certain trade-offs in the way of either pragmatic difficulties of obtaining certain image rights and scans, resolutions, different archives will charge different amounts for being able to publish images. It's a taxing labor of love in many respects, not only in terms of securing rights for publication, but of the extra time and care and sometimes training that it does take to learn the ins and outs of reproduction technology or of analyzing and reviewing images. And that's you know, part and parcel of this, or the additional training it requires to have these conversations, art historians, anthropologists, literary scholars, and others. So it's a challenge, but one that I've ultimately chosen to embrace in trying to foster new pathways uh, for historians. What projects are you currently working on? I'm currently undertaking a very ambitious book on picturing American history tentatively titled, which would span the entire 19th century, and which would look at some of the central development of that century through the prism of an image or a handful of images that were widely circulated and discussed, if not outright popular, in their own time. So this could include Thomas Nast's depictions of African Americans during the Civil War and Reconstruction periods, a chapter I've completed on that. It could include visual depictions of Native Americans, including a very popular uh, 1896 lithograph that Anheuser-Busch promoted as part of their own marketing campaign of Custer's Last Stand, which then has its own capacity for inflecting or influencing the way that people, Americans, average Americans, say sitting in a, a bar gazing up at this image, interpret the history of the United States or the U.S. West or of uh, Indian relations in particular. So each chapter will involve one of these central changes, domestic life in the age of the market economy or the growth of cities and the ways in which we pictured them. It's a very ambitious project, but one that I hope will help us to re-examine some of the central developments of the 19th century through the eyes of the people experiencing them and what kinds of visual recordings or interpretations they chose to celebrate or to cherish or to examine themselves and what that tells us about the ways in which they were either experiencing these events as they were happening or trying to interpret them in specific ways for posterity. And finally, how can listeners learn more about your work? I would refer them to amylibert.com, which is my personal website, and to the companion website for my first book, Consuming Identities, which is highlighted in the book, consumingidentities.com, in which I have showcased some of the uh, high-resolution scanned images that have been very helpfully provided to the public from a number of archives and libraries, the Library of Congress, the Huntington Library in San Marino, California, the Beinecke Library at Yale. But I've tried to make some of those image scans accessible to people in a centralized location as, you know, hopefully inspiration for doing similar kinds of work or exploring some of the images I discussed in my book in detail. And my website will have future speaking engagements, articles, 
and other opportunities for seeking out examples of, of my work and the work that I'm uh, collaborating on with other scholars. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. For more information and latest updates, visit us at luminary.fm or follow us on Twitter at luminaryfm. Please subscribe to the podcast, pop us an iTunes review, and share with friends. Don't forget to check out the show notes. And a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this episode by the hosts and the participants are solely those in independent capacity and do not in any way represent the views from any organization, company or management they may be associated with. And thank you for listening.